Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse and child abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 2016, Nicole lay naked on a table. She was blindfolded and bound at the ankles and wrists. As she shivered from the cold, Nicole probably wondered how she got there. She had just wanted to be a successful actress. That's why she trusted Allison Mack. Months earlier, 34-year-old Allison had invited Nicole to join a women's empowerment group. Thrilled that a TV veteran would take an interest in her, Nicole accepted. Then came the demands. First, Allison told Nicole to call her master. Then she insisted that Nicole remain celibate for three months. But it was Allison's final request that led to Nicole lying naked, blindfolded and bound, with only 56-year-old Keith Ranieri at her side. While Nicole was immobilized, someone began performing oral sex on her. At first, she assumed it was Keith, but then he started talking to her, even as the act continued. That's when Nicole realized with horror that she didn't know who was going down on her. And bound as she was, there was nothing she could do to stop them. After the oral sex she hadn't consented to, Nicole returned to Allison in shock. However, when she told the actress what had transpired with Keith, Allison didn't seem surprised. Instead, she told Nicole that she was brave and she had earned the privilege of working more with Keith. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. This marks the second week of our deep dive into Nexium. The group made headlines for physically branding its celebrity-laden membership and coercing them into being sex slaves, all to satisfy its narcissistic leader, Keith Raniere. In this episode, we'll explore Keith's relationship with actress Allison Mack. Then we'll detail the role Allison played in his predatory sorority. Finally, we'll cover some of the horrifying practices Keith inflicted upon DOS members. In Thursday's final episode, we'll delve into the unmasking of DOS for what it really was, a sex ring. We'll follow Keith's desperate flight to Mexico and his eventual capture and downfall. We've got all this and more coming up. Stay with us. In 2006, 46-year-old Keith Ranieri was a man completely in charge of his kingdom. He'd built Nexium up from nothing. And though the corporate clients he'd initially coveted had rejected him, Keith more than made up for it by securing billionaire heiresses, Claire and Sarah Bronfman, as members. However, the shiniest jewel in Keith's crown was his newest recruit. Allison Mack. Five years earlier, in 2001, 19-year-old Allison Mack was cast to play Superman's best friend in the hit teen soap Smallville. In addition to being a superhero's pal, she worked for the Smallville newspaper. As a result, her main driving impulse was the search for truth. 
Like her character, Allison too was motivated by a search for truth and purpose. In an interview with journalist Corinna Knoll, a friend described her as someone who was constantly searching for something that was missing in her life. In 2006, perhaps 24-year-old Allison believed that she would find that missing thing in Nexium. Maybe that's why she climbed into the Bronfman's private jet and flew to Albany, New York, to meet the vanguard, Keith Raniere. Allison's initial meeting with the smartest man in the world must have been successful, because according to journalists Rebecca Sun and Scott Johnson, she was still in Albany, surrounded by Vanguard's inner circle a few weeks later. Allison wasn't the only actress drawn in by Nexium. Fellow Smallville co-star Kristen Kruk, Hawaii Five-O actress Grace Park, and Battlestar Galactica actress Nikki Klein were all reported members. Actresses might have flocked to Nexium because of Keith's claim that he could coach anyone to do anything even win an Academy Award. However, there may have been another reason they felt drawn to the group. Research suggests that artists might be more susceptible to charismatic cults. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. In an interview with journalist Scott Johnson and Rebecca Sun, Jody Wilde, a documentary film director and cults expert, stated that Hollywood is filled with vulnerable artists, many of whom are lost or damaged. So if you get a predator in the mix, whether it's Harvey Weinstein or the leader of Nexium, they're going to go for it. Those leaders might offer other forms of support that they can't get from their agent or manager. Allison, like all actresses, was subject to the many rejections that are part of every acting career. So a desire for a more stable form of acceptance and support might explain why she was so tied to the group. It might also explain why her attachment sustained, even in the face of some of Nexium's more regressive teachings. More specifically, the beliefs Keith espoused in his intensive seminar called Jeunesse. Jeunesse posed as a female empowerment class, but its subject matter was almost comically misogynistic. During Jeunesse intensives, Keith taught female Nexians that women were naturally more submissive and prone to monogamous relationships, while men were dominant and genetically predisposed to polyamory. According to journalist E.J. Dixon, Keith also preached that men inherently had more character and fortitude, and women were more prone to flightiness and game-playing. The women who signed up for Jeunesse were searching for self-empowerment, therefore exposing their current lack of power and self-esteem. Their insecurity made them easy marks for Keith's misogynistic indoctrination. And Alison Mack was no different. In a 2007 blog, the actress wrote, I have a tendency to say I'm stupid. I have become very comfortable chalking things up to the fact that I don't have a proper education. These negative personal feelings go some way towards explaining why Allison didn't immediately recoil from suggestions that women were flighty creatures, lacking in character and fortitude. In essence, Janessa's philosophy was just reinforcing her own low opinion about herself. However, Nexium wasn't all misogynistic seminars about the sexes. Allison might have also been drawn to the cult for its young creative community and its many recreational events. 
By 2006, Barbara Boucher, one of Keith's girlfriends, had already created Vanguard Week, or V-Week. Though she'd invented V-Week to be a business conference to promote Nexium, it turned into a 10-day celebration of Keith's birth. During V-Week, Nexians from all over the United States, Europe, Canada, and Mexico descended on the compound in Clifton Park. Filmmaker Mark Vicente, a former Nexian, likened the proceedings to a summer camp for adults where you had all these things you could choose from that you wanted to do. Drumming, dancing, singing, even poetry. All of it was done as a tribute to Keith, recognizing him as the creator of a philosophical movement. The veneration of Keith wasn't restricted to V-Week either. It featured in every single facet of Nexian life, especially amongst the group's female members. In an interview with ABC's 2020, Mark Vicente stated that when Keith played volleyball at the compound, which he did almost daily, rows of women would wait for him on the sidelines. And then, the minute there was a break between plays, they would rush him like he was a rock star, all of them eager to ask him their deep, pressing questions. Their adulation was why Keith, despite claiming to be celibate, was able to continue sexual relationships with several of his female students. According to an FBI report, he had between 15 and 20 sexual partners simultaneously in the early 2000s. Allison Mack didn't know this. All she saw was the rampant deification of Keith. According to social psychologist Robert Zions, human beings are subject to a phenomenon called the exposure effect. Zions found that the more a person is exposed to an object or an idea, the more likely they are to believe it. Early on in Allison's introduction to Nexium, she saw Keith being celebrated as an enlightened being during V-Week. She witnessed followers flocking to him after his volleyball games. In line with the exposure effect, it's possible Allison too began to view Keith as a deity. The addition of a Hollywood actress to his coterie of admirers likely filled Keith with joy. And yet, even as he was enjoying the fruits of the kingdom he had built, trouble was brewing within his ranks. Barbara Boucher, the woman who invented the week that venerated his birth, was beginning to challenge his authority. By the late 2000s, 49-year-old Barbara Boucher had been a member of Nexium for nine years. She dated Keith Ranieri for almost the entirety of that time. And after nearly a decade with Nexium, she had grievous concerns about the way the group was being run. Barbara wasn't alone in her feelings. She was backed up by eight other women, including fellow upper-level Nexian Susan Donez. Bolstered by their number, the Nexium 9 confronted Keith. In an article for Frank Parlotta's website, Art Voice, Susan Donis detailed the group's main points. She called Keith out for his sexual exploitation of female students, for borrowing large amounts of money from members, and finally, for his refusal to pay state or federal taxes. In response, Keith was simultaneously dismissive and threatening. Using needlessly technical jargon, he told the women that they didn't have the data to fully understand the true reality of the situation. They didn't have his experience of leadership or the experience of preserving people's lives. At that, one of the women pushed back. She said that Keith didn't have leadership experience either, since his company, Consumers Byline, had fallen apart within a few years. 
Her accurate synopsis of his CBI failure caused a flicker in Keith's previously calm demeanor. His voice soft, yet furious. He told the women that he'd had people killed because of his beliefs and because of their beliefs. It's unclear how the confrontation ended after that. However, we know that ultimately the meetings accomplished nothing. Keith refused to admit any wrongdoing, so all nine women defected. It was the largest exodus of upper-level members Keith had suffered to date. He didn't take it well. When Tony Natale dumped Keith, he attacked her with a series of retaliatory lawsuits. Barbara Boucher suffered the same fate. Keith had already squandered the bulk of her savings in speculative commodity trades. Barbara spent the rest of her coffers battling his lawsuits, all while knowing that Keith's Bronfman stuffed pockets were practically bottomless. Attacking a woman who abandoned him in court likely gave Keith some satisfaction, but it didn't erase the significance of the Nexium 9's defection. Perhaps the exodus of so many crucial members made Keith fear he was losing control of his empire. If that was the case, it certainly would explain why he reacted with such ire when it seemed he was losing his hold over one of his young female members. Up next, Keith Raniere exerts absolute power over one young woman's life. Now, back to the story. In 2009, 49-year-old Keith Raniere was reeling from the defection of Barbara Boucher, Susan Donez, and seven other upper-level Nexians. Their sudden exodus likely made him question whether his hold over his empire was as absolute as he'd believed. Perhaps driven by a desire to maintain control, Keith reacted with fury when he started losing his hold over a 26-year-old Nexian named Daniela Flores. By 2010, Daniela had been a Nexian for 10 years after moving to Albany at age 16. Keith had started grooming her shortly before she turned 18. As a promising student with dreams of Harvard, she'd been excited to learn from the smartest man in the world. In the decades since her arrival, however, all Keith had taught her was how to clean offices and pleasure him sexually. The significant age difference and unequal power dynamic of their relationship was concerning enough. However, what made Keith's affair with Daniela even more disturbing was the fact that he was also having sex with her sisters, Mariana and Camila. Daniela may have been able to ignore this unnatural setup. However, on one occasion, Keith attempted to coerce her and one of her sisters into having a threesome with him. The traumatizing interlude only came to an end when both sisters broke down crying. That wasn't the worst of Keith's behavior. At different points in time, he had impregnated all three sisters and insisted they get abortions. In the aftermath of Daniela's abortion, Keith presented the traumatized girl with a silver lining. He told her the procedure would help her lose weight, claiming that Olympic athletes often got abortions as part of their training. In light of Keith's cruelty, it's no surprise that in 2010, 26-year-old Daniela looked for affection elsewhere. She developed a crush on fellow Nexium member Ben Myers. Although Keith was having sex with two of her sisters and countless others, when he found out Daniela was romantically interested in someone else, he lost it. According to journalist E.J. Dixon, Keith became enraged by the supposed ethical breach. 
and sent his other girlfriends, including Prefect, to encourage Daniela to apologize. Ultimately, however, he decided that an apology was too small a price to pay. Instead, Keith commanded that Daniela remain locked in her small bedroom as a form of penance. For the next two years, Daniela was trapped in the room with only a mattress, a pen, and paper. Her parents, fervent Nexians who had also immigrated to Albany, would bring her food. But under orders from Keith, they refused to speak to her. In her isolation, Daniela grew hopeless and suicidal. She wrote letters to Keith daily, apologizing to him and begging him to end her confinement. Keith didn't read Daniela's desperate letters, and he refused to release her from her prison. If he couldn't control the actions of the Nexium 9, he could at least dictate the entirety of one girl's life. In addition to imprisoning Daniela, Keith enjoyed other victories in 2010. Allegedly, that's the year he added Allison Mack to his roster of sexual partners. In the four years since she joined the group, 28-year-old Allison Mack had become a full-fledged Nexium evangelist. She preached to family members and friends alike, regaling them with tales of Nexium's brilliance, its unparalleled ethics. She also consistently returned to the well of her fellow artists. According to Scott Johnson and Rebecca Sun's article for The Hollywood Reporter, at different points, Allison attempted to recruit Seventh Heaven alum Beverly Mitchell and Grammy-winning singer Kelly Clarkson. However, Allison's most disturbing overtures were her attempts to recruit Harry Potter actress Emma Watson. In a series of tweets, Allison implored Emma to participate in a unique human development and women's movement. Emma didn't respond to her missives, and that was for the best, because by 2010, Allison's involvement with Nexium was already taking a toll on her health. According to a former Nexium member who bumped into the actress at a yoga studio in 2010, she could tell that Allison had already started a sexual relationship with Keith because the actress had a gray pallor that was common to Keith's women as they all started to get a little sickly. Keith was attracted to unnaturally skinny women and likely manipulated them into extreme weight loss. As a result, the former member stated that his girls looked scary. They all dropped weight, their heads getting too big for their bodies, so they became bobbleheads. Yet despite the fact that Keith was bad for her, 29-year-old Allison committed to the group further when her hit show Smallville came to an end after 10 seasons. With the role of Clark Kent's closest confidant behind her, Allison decided to audition for that same position in Keith Raniere's life. To that end, the actress bought a house in Albany and transplanted her life there committing herself to furthering the movement full-time. Keith might have read Allison's move as a sign. He wasn't losing his grip on his followers. He had Daniela in chains and a Hollywood actress warming his bed. His control over his kingdom was unshakable. But Keith's feelings of certainty soon shattered against a series of punishing events. First came the articles. In November of 2010, Vanity Fair published a piece called The Heiresses and the Cult. In it, journalist Susanna Andrews not only dubbed Nexium a cult, she also detailed the fact that by 2010, Keith had blown $150 million of the Bronfman's fortune. 
That same year, New York Post journalist Gene McIntosh reported on the bizarre claims Keith made during his meeting with the Nexium 9. She specifically focused on his assertion that he'd had people killed. Keith's second wave of attacks came from his ex-girlfriend, Tony Natale. In 2011, she filed a lawsuit against him, accusing him of repeatedly raping her during their nine-year relationship. Natale's claims were seemingly bolstered when in 2012, the Times Union's incisive piece, In Ranieri Shadows, dropped. In the article, journalists James M. Odato and Jennifer Gish detailed years of statutory rape allegations from Keith's underage victims. Despite this deluge of bad press and lawsuits, Keith was able to keep the fallout from penetrating his Clifton Park fortress. According to Tony Natale's book, The Program, Nexians wrote all of it off as a coordinated media vendetta. Demonizing the press is a common tactic cult leaders use. However, the cops played right into Keith's hands. They reinforced his narrative by not promptly pressing any charges. Their hands were tied. In many of the cases, the statute of limitations had elapsed. While Keith had managed to contain the fallout from without, he never anticipated the massive blow he would soon suffer from within. Kristen Keith was one of Keith's earliest acolytes. In addition, unbeknownst to most Nexians, Kristen was the mother of Keith's son, Galen. Since Keith was claiming to be celibate, the two hid Galen's paternity by pretending he was the adopted son of an entirely different woman. However, in 2014, Kristen dropped the pretense when she fled Clifton Park with her child in tow. According to Times Union journalist James M. Odato, Kristen ran because she was concerned about her son's welfare. In an email, the scared mother allegedly wrote, Keith was experimenting on Galen. I had to get him away. Kristen wasn't specific about what form Keith's experimentation took. However, she might have been referring to his insistence that Galen attend Rainbow Cultural Gardens, or RCG. RCG was a childhood development program Keith created shortly after Galen's birth. All enrolled children were spoken to in five different languages by five different nannies. This might have been the experimentation Kristen was talking about. However, she may have also been hinting at something far more sinister. According to the program, a year before Kristen's escape, investigative journalist Chet Harden received a letter from a woman given the pseudonym Inez. Like Daniela, Inez was from Mexico. Unlike the former student, however, she was heavily involved in Keith's childhood initiative, Rainbow Cultural Gardens. In the email Inez sent, she stated that she wanted out of Nexium. She was beginning to suspect that Keith created RCG not to teach children how to speak different languages, but rather to groom them into having sex with adults. Inez alleged that Keith openly claimed that he wanted to use the school to teach children that sex was beautiful and should be practiced openly. We can't say for sure whether Kristen was privy to claims of such tenor from Keith, but if she was, it certainly would explain why she left him so suddenly, taking their son with her. Kristen's departure might have also been motivated by her fears for her own life. A week after leaving Keith, Kristen reached out to Nexium 9 defector Barbara Boucher. Journalist Sarah Berman reported that Kristen told Boucher that she was in hiding with her son. She was afraid for her life because of the things she'd seen Keith do. 
the worst of which was his attempt to pull off what she termed a Mexican plot. In this gambit, Kristen claimed that Keith bribed a judge in Mexico to issue an indictment against Barbara, Tony, and Susan Donez. They were going to be lured south of the border, and once they got there, Keith's upper-level Mexican contacts were going to put them in prison. When a shocked Barbara asked how serious Keith was, Kristen responded that the plot had been three years in the making. More chilling, Kristen stated that she'd long realized that Keith was not trying to succeed. He was trying to enslave. As we covered last week, Keith exhibited several traits consistent with a diagnosis of psychopathy. In accordance with psychologist Robert Hare's checklist, Keith showed signs of manipulativeness, sexual promiscuity, pathological lying, and a lack of empathy. Behavioral analysis agents at the FBI identified one more characteristic endemic amongst psychopaths, namely their need to maintain absolute control over others at all costs. Given this desire, Christian's defection might have been the most painful one Keith had suffered yet. She'd been with him since almost the very beginning. Thus, her departure would have acted as the final blow, shattering any illusions he held about being in control. The first time Keith was reeling from a loss of control, he reacted by confining Daniela to a tiny room. With Kristen's defection, Keith would go even further than that. It was no longer enough for him to control one young woman. To restore his sense of order and his hold over his empire, Keith decided to enslave scores of women. Up next, Keith crafts a secret sorority to enslave his female members. Now, back to the story. By 2014, 54-year-old Keith Raniere had weathered a slew of rapid-fire attacks on his credibility. First, there were the critical articles that branded him as a cult leader and sexual predator. Then, his ex-girlfriend, Tony Natale, sued him for raping her during their eight-year relationship, However, it was Kristen Keefe, one of his most loyal subjects, that dealt Keith the most grievous blow. She left him, taking his son with her. But much worse than that, Kristen forced Keith to realize that his hold over Nexium's membership wasn't absolute. And that was unacceptable. Keith taught his students that he could control technology and the weather. How would it look if he couldn't even keep his own house in order? In 2015, 55-year-old Keith found the solution to the mutiny in his ranks. He decided to create a secret society of female slaves. He called the group DOS. DOS stood for Dominus Obsequius Sororium, Latin which they reportedly translated as Master Over the Slave Women. Like both Consumers Byline and Nexium, Keith crafted the group to have a pyramid structure. However, DOS didn't sell discount consumer products like CBI, nor self-improvement classes like Nexium. In fact, joining the group was completely free. But that didn't mean that there wasn't a price to pay. In order to gain access to the secret society, Nexian women were forced into sexual slavery. However, Keith knew that he couldn't enslave his female members outright. Instead, he needed someone to put a glossy veneer on his heart's darkest desires. 
In the past, Keith would have likely turned to bubbly Pam Kafritz to act as Doss's unthreatening face. As a member of Keith's original three-woman harem, Pam was the cult leader's main capo, procuring him beautiful women to sleep with on demand. However, in 2015, Pam was dying of cancer, so Keith turned to Allison Mack instead. By 2015, 33-year-old Allison was more enamored of Keith than ever. The depth of her feelings were evident when she sang Donny Hathaway's I Love You More Than You'll Ever Know at his 56th birthday celebration. With tears in her eyes, the emaciated actress crooned, I'm only flesh and blood, but I can be anything that you demand. Sentiments of that nature were also conveyed in an email Allison sent to Keith. According to journalist E.J. Dixon, in the missive, Allison explained how grateful she was to be deep in Keith's thrall, how disappointing her own strides towards self-empowerment had been, and how nothing made her feel so powerful as to be made by him to feel powerless. In other words, Allison and Keith were perfectly matched. He wanted power, and she longed to be powerless. Unfortunately, controlling one willing woman wasn't enough to satisfy Keith's desires. To gain access to the scores of women he coveted, he convinced Allison to be one of Doss's first-line slaves. In addition to Allison, Keith directly recruited seven other slaves, including Prefect's daughter, Lauren Salzman. These first-line slaves were unique because they knew that Keith was their master. He convinced them that being enslaved to him would help them, in turn, become masters of their own lives. Once they bought into this paradox, Keith encouraged them to recruit slaves of their own, thus becoming masters in their own right. According to the program, unlike the women directly recruited by Keith, the second-line slaves had no idea about his role in the group. They joined under the false pretense that DOS was an exclusively female organization. Nothing could be further from the truth. As the sole man atop the whole sadomasochistic pyramid, Keith was the grandmaster. And he had big plans for DOS. According to Vice journalist Sarah Berman, Keith told Lauren that he envisioned the sorority amassing thousands of members. To that end, he told her to work towards recruiting 100 slaves. According to the program, the recruitment process went like this. Allison, Lauren, or one of the other first-line slaves would approach a Nexium member and ask them if they wanted to be part of a secret society of badass women who were dedicated to the empowerment of other women. This pitch was seductive because it was always delivered by an upper-level Nexian. Wanting to be considered one of the elite, the recruit usually said yes. It was at that point that they were asked to provide collateral, a sort of insurance policy that would make sure they kept the group a secret. Journalist E.J. Dixon wrote that collateral often took the form of sexually explicit material, such as videos of a recruit masturbating, or postmarked false confessions that relatives or loved ones had sexually abused them. The implicit threat was that if the women told anyone about DOS, their collateral would be released. Unbeknownst to the women, even if they did keep the secret, their incriminating items were usually shared with Keith. Once they'd provided material for their own future blackmail, their recruit was officially a slave. This designation came with a whole new set of rules. 
First, slaves had to carry out their master's commands no matter what. In order to prove this allegiance, they participated in readiness drills. This meant that slaves had to respond to texts from their masters within 60 seconds, no matter what hour, even if it was the middle of the night. If they failed, they had to submit to punishment. Recrimination took many forms. Sometimes underperforming slaves were forced to take cold showers or made to stand barefoot in the snow. Other times they were paddled or whipped. Journalist Colin Moynihan reported that on one occasion, Keith even called in during a beating to tell the women to make sure that they snapped their wrists in a particular way to inflict maximum pain on the slave. In addition to occasionally taking beatings, slaves were also required to meet three times a week with their masters. At the start of each of these sessions, both slave and female master alike were required to pose for a naked family photo. In these pictures, Keith insisted that women's legs be widely spread and their vaginas prominently angled towards the camera. As though this weren't intrusive enough, Slaves also had to follow a set of rules that dictated specifics about their personal appearance. Some slaves were required to adhere to a punishing 500-calorie-a-day diet. They also were under strict orders not to groom their pubic hair. Lastly, slaves had to commit to remaining celibate. They weren't even allowed to masturbate. The purpose of this particular set of rules was twofold. First, it ensured that the slaves fit Keith's sexual preference for emaciated women who didn't wax. Secondly, it kept all their sexual energies in tight reserve. However, as mentioned, initially, none of the second-line slaves had any idea about Keith's involvement. They were told that they were doing all of it, the cold showers, the graphic pictures, the restrictive diets, for their own empowerment. While it's difficult to understand how they bought into this justification, their compliance was likely due to societal messaging we've all been subject to. Concepts like no pain, no gain. You have to break a couple of eggs to make an omelet. Sure, getting paddled hurt, but if it made a person mentally tough enough to pursue the things they wanted, wasn't it worth it? In that same vein, a 500-calorie diet was punishing, but if it taught a person discipline and delayed gratification, weren't those good lessons to learn? It was all in the name of becoming a badass, like they'd been promised. The second thing that might have made Doss's extreme path to empowerment seem acceptable was the larger self-improvement climate at the time. In the 2010s, wellness enthusiasts were stuffing jade eggs into their vaginas. Silicon Valley titans were injecting the blood of the young into their veins. In light of that, taking a cold shower and submitting to a paddling might not have seemed so strange. However, like the frog in the pot of water, once the second-line slaves had accepted that Das's approach was a little off the wall, the temperature was turned up. Eventually, one of the first-line slaves, like Allison Mack, would give a second-liner the assignment, also known as the order to seduce Keith Raniere. It was this task that upper-level Nexian, Monica Duran, assigned to her slave, Sylvie. According to journalist Amanda Arnold, to fulfill her assignment, Sylvie was at first only required to send Keith explicit pictures and text messages. Eventually, however, she was subjected to physical sexual encounters. Arnold reported that in one incident, Keith performed oral sex on Sylvie. After the encounter, he told her that he was her grand master. 
Sylvie later stated that at the time, she felt so much shame. She felt everything was just lies and secrets and darkness. If Keith was aware of Sylvie's despair, it didn't bother him. Her experience mirrored how several of Keith's interludes with his slaves transpired. Once they were given the assignment by their masters, they'd proposition him sexually. Then Keith would either go down on them or have sex with them. However, intercourse wasn't always possible. As Keith neared his 60s, erectile dysfunction became a frequent problem. According to journalists Rebecca Sun and Scott Johnson, a former Nexian said that if Keith had difficulty getting an erection, which was often, he blamed it on her weight. Despite Keith's callous treatment, the members of DOS couldn't just leave the group. They were trapped. Their bondage was threefold. First, as longtime Nexians, many of them had been indoctrinated by the precepts of Jeunesse to view men as being inherently polyamorous while women were monogamous. So in essence, they'd been groomed to somewhat accept the setup of several women sleeping with one man. Secondly, Keith was revered as a deity within the group, so refusing his advances might not have seemed like an option. Lastly, members of DOS feared that if they did try to leave, their incriminating collateral would be released out into the world. However, if the combination of this threat and their religious indoctrination didn't prove deterrent enough, Keith's most devoted slave, Allison Mack, was always there to bring disobedient members to heel. According to Scott Johnson and Rebecca Sun's reporting, two of Allison's slaves said the actress was incredibly intimidating, cruel, and punitive. When they balked at having sex with Keith, Allison allegedly screamed at them, you made a lifetime vow. Then she berated them and told them they were worth nothing, that they were weak and couldn't uphold their word. She also told them that if they refused her orders, dated other men, left the group, or refused sex with Keith, they would be destroyed. But while Allison may have seemed unfeeling on the outside, internally, she was breaking down. Johnson and Son reported that around this time, the actress penned a veritable cry for help on her blog, writing, cold sweats, constantly, the anxiety of being caught makes my heart thrum like a hummingbird. Someday I will be discovered. I will be found out. And yet, Allison's fears didn't prevent her from engaging in the worst violation Doss inflicted on its members. On the contrary, acting on Keith's orders, Allison insisted that her slaves perform one more act of loyalty, physical branding. When they screamed in agony over the hot, cauterizing pen searing their skin, Allison instructed them to feel the pain and think of their master. Perhaps during these ceremonies, Allison was doing the same. In lieu of smelling the singed flesh, maybe she cast her mind to Keith. As for 55-year-old Keith, his thoughts, as always, were on himself. He was smart enough never to attend the branding ceremonies, However, he received pictures of his handiwork, and the sight likely filled him with joy. After all, the brands were permanent proof that he still had control over his empire. He was the Grand Master. However, none of it would have been possible without his most loyal slave. And for that, Keith sought to reward Allison. Unbeknownst to the women getting branded, the symbol being burned into their flesh, was a combination of the letters AM and KR. 
Allison Mack and Keith Ranieri, their linked initials forever spelled out in blood. The brands might have been absolute, but Keith's pyramid of sadomasochism was not. Already, cracks of doubt were beginning to form in the women who made up its foundation, and soon, the whole thing would come crumbling down. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back Thursday with the final episode of our four-part special. We'll cover how news about Nexium hit the tabloids, leading to Keith's imprisonment. For more information on Keith Ranieri, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Program, Inside the Mind of Keith Ranieri by Tony Natale with Chet Hardin, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Abiyageli Adimegu, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 